You're watching Deprogrammed. This is the New Culture Forum's latest show, committed to fighting back against the forces of ideological conformity, particularly among the young. My name's Harrison Pitt, I'm a senior editor at the European Conservative, and I'm thrilled to be joined today, as ever, by Evan Riggs, who is a freelance journalist, and our special guest this week, Christian Niemitz, head of political economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs and the author of Socialism, The Failed Idea That Never Dies. Now, Christian, uh, the latest immigration figures reveal that the that net immigration is currently running at about 750. Uh, th it ran at 750,000 in 2022 over the last year or so. It's, I think, somewhere at around 650,000. Perhaps uniquely among economic liberals, you don't seem to think that these rates are, are logistically sustainable. Can you explain why that is? What are the logistical pressures that those figures are causing? Well, they're not in the current setup because we have a housing market where you can't build anything. We have a healthcare system that's inflexible and can't respond to demand and uh, the whole system of infrastructure provision, um, anything to do with public services uh, is highly irresponsive to consumer demand, but uh, it doesn't have to be that way. And these are domestic constraints that are self-imposed and um, they don't need to be there. Uh, in the housing market, for example, it's a political choice that uh, that we have given the NIMBY lobby, the people who block everything, so much power. Uh, it would be perfectly feasible to disempower NIMBYs and um, create a free market in housing where it doesn't matter what the population growth rate is, where the supply side can simply respond to demand. It would be possible to have a more market-based healthcare system where if there's more need for healthcare provision of a particular type, the market would just respond and provide that. With a time lag sometimes, of course, uh, but where in principle um, those sectors don't have to be different from, say, the supermarket sector, where you never hear um, the, the, the managers of Tesco or, or Morrison's or Sainsbury's complaining, oh, we can't cope with all this extra demand, you need to... Uh, shelter us from, from the impact of population growth. No, they love it uh, if they have more customers and they just supply the extra goods that are demanded. So uh, I'm not an open borders libertarian. Um, there are basically two types of concerns, uh, objections to high migration. One is economic, one is cultural. And I'd say the cultural ones, these are a lot more reasonable. It is clearly true that um, that people don't automatically adopt, uh, say, a new identity uh, when, when they arrive in a new country uh, or that when you have people from very different places living together that can cause tensions, that can weaken social cohesion, cultural cohesion. That, that's all, those are all perfectly reasonable objections. I'm just saying the economic ones. Mm -hmm. uh, purely on the economic side, there's no reason why Britain or, or any other country should not be able to sustain high migration figures. And if you look at it, purely in terms of population growth. Um, it is, I mean, people always go on about how these migration figures are unprecedented, which they are. It's true, of course, that uh, Britain had very little migration until 30 years or so ago. Uh, but there have been periods in the past where overall population growth rates have been fairly similar. Um, the post-war baby boom, most of the Victorian age. So it's really just the 70s and 80s that were unusual in that the population was almost stagnant. Uh, but high population growth uh, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution has been fairly normal. And that was not a problem until several sectors were nationalized or the state began to control supply. So throughout the uh, most of the Victorian age, the housing market was a lot more flexible and uh, population growth was not a problem 
in, in those terms. Housing still became more affordable over time as more houses were built. And uh, it was only with uh, the introduction of this system that we have now with the Town and Country Planning Act, uh, 1947, that that started to become a problem. Hmm. Uh, so why does Team NIMBY have so much outsized power then if it's not working on an economic basis? Um, well, there is generally the problem, say, from the, from the perspective of a politician. Uh, you may know that you need, that the country needs to build houses, uh, that, uh, that housing supply is, is insufficient. And um, you may know that if you don't respond to that, uh, your voters are not going to like you because they will suffer the consequences from uh, expanding, from, from rising housing costs. It's just that there is an asymmetry uh, in, in that sector in, in that if you're a NIMBY politician, uh, or, or let's say the opposite, if you're a YIMBY politician, uh, you want more house building. Um, there are people who will object to what you're doing. They will say you're concreting over the countryside or you're blocking my beautiful view. Uh, there will be a lot of resistance to that. And, um, and at the same time, the people who would benefit from them, they cannot be identified because mm -hmm. unless the houses have actually been built and somebody has moved in, you don't know who these people are. So you don't know in advance who the beneficiaries of house building are going to be. So I benefit from the fact that the house in which I currently live has been built at some point because, mm. because I live there and I quite like living there. But if I had been around at the time uh, that it was built, I don't think I would have actively campaigned for its construction because I wouldn't have known that one day I'm going to be living in it. You don't know that until it's already happened. And that's always the problem that uh, you get these NIMBY groups saying, uh, posing as the community. They're saying uh, the community doesn't want this. This is unwanted <clears throat> development. This is forced on us. Well, who is the community? Uh, surely that, uh, yeah, even if that is the community as it is now, um, once a new housing development goes ahead, it would be very unlikely that the people living in these new houses uh, would retroactively object to the construction the of their own yeah. houses. Mm. Yeah. But what is that? What, I mean, what are the um, the only concern? I'm, I'm not necessarily a YIMBY. I, I'm, I don't pay as much attention to housing policy as I do to other issues. But like, what, like to try and my best to steel man the YIMBYist case. Like, what is the what is the what is there to prevent the Lake District looking like Cairo on on this um, sort of no holes barred? free market, a completely liberal housing market? Like what, what would prevent that sort of thing from happening? I mean, Roger Scruton, for example, the conservative philosopher in his, um, in his, in his white paper on building better, building be beautiful, he suggests that one, one way to tranquilize Yimbyism as a political force would be to Nimbyism, say- Nimbyism, you mean? I mean Nimbyism, I mean Nimbyism. Um, to tranquilize Nimbyism as a political force in this country, one way to tranquilize it would be build more be more beautifully. Because no one, as he put it, no one would object if you wanted to build Bath again, but people would object if you were trying to turn the Lake District into Cairo. Um, I think he's a bit too charitable to the Nimbys. I've seen plenty of uh, development projects where, um, I mean, nowadays you can quite easily visualize all this in advance with AI and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. you, you can show exactly what it's going to look like. I've seen cases where uh, somebody proposed a housing development project that looked perfectly fine to me and you still have objections. And uh, I think saying that new development 
It's ugly and that's why I pose it's often a NIMBY excuse. One of the problems with NIMBYism is that you're not going to find anyone who will openly say, I'm a NIMBY, uh, I have a nice house and I don't care about you. Uh, NIMBYs always have to rationalize their arguments in some way. Post some, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Some do that by simply denying the importance of the supply okay. side. Some are just straightforward economics deniers. Okay. Some angle for justifications that may sound socially acceptable. One of them being uh, that it's about aesthetics, because that's something where, say, if you're neutral on the issue, that will probably sound reasonable to you. Okay. Uh, and that's why they angle for those. Um, but whatever is being proposed, someone will still always object to it. Perhaps more importantly, I'd argue that it's actually the other way around, that uh, it's nimbyism which causes housing to be Ugly. uglier than it needs to be, for the simple reason that nimbyism drives up the cost of land, and when land costs are very high, you need to cut costs somewhere else. And you need that means in practice you cut back on optional extras. If housing is extremely expensive to begin with, yeah. uh, then, yeah, then aesthetics, nice looks, those would be things that are optional extras and that you don't care about so much when you're already hard-pressed. Otherwise, I can't see why, from a, purely from a, uh, a developer's perspective, even if you're wholly self-interested, uh, you don't care about the character of the place or anything. Surely, beautiful houses uh, will be more in demand than ugly ones. Okay, so you don't think that we will actually wind up needing? So let's forget NIMBYs. Maybe they're these people are completely irredeemable, and like they're, they're, you know, there's motivated reasoning going on, is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but like, f f forget the, the NIMBY lobby at large. You don't think that there need to be any regulatory guardrails preventing, say, as an example I keep bringing up, the Lake District from looking like Cairo. You don't think there. You just think that naturally that's something that won't happen if people are free to pursue their own choices in a free market and at, at, at a housing level. Well, I'm I'm not opposed to things like um, protections for for some areas on the basis of, say, areas of outstanding uh, natural beauty. Uh, there, in a pure market system, you could have a, a collective action problem that uh, we may all agree that um, it would be nice to preserve those places, at least to, to a large extent, mm -hmm. but you might individual th individually think, well, if I build one house there, come on, that's not going to make a difference. I might also think, if I build one house there, that's not going to make a difference. You may think the same, mm. and then uh, at some point, though, it's not the Lake District anymore. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's why um, a market system would be compatible with uh, environmental protections. What it would not be compatible with is, is uh, things like the Green Belt, which is uh, often confused with an environmental designation, but it isn't. The Green Belt, large parts of the Green Belt are not green. It's simply a belt. Well, it's not even a belt anymore, because a belt is normally not bigger than the person it's wrapped around. <laughs> Whereas uh, at least the London Green Belt, I think, has more, uh, has a greater area than the built-up part of London. And uh, it's just an arbitrary designation around the big city saying, you can't build here. Mm. But it's got nothing to do with, the, with any features of the, of, of the landscape. It's not based on... Uh, what that land looks like, whether it has scenic value or whether it has environmental benefits, uh, maybe wildlife. Those are things that, uh, as, as a YIMBY, I'm perfectly okay with, those sorts of protections. Then this is an area which, is, uh, which has a, a concentration of wildlife that where you would upset the balance if, if you build houses there. Or this is an area which is just uh, exceptionally beautiful to look at. And uh, I think that isn't 
purely subjective. I think that's something that where most people would quite agree that this is a beautiful landscape, this is not. So you can have all sorts of protections, that's perfectly fine. Um, but th and, and that is not the, the problem with, uh, that is not where the problem of the housing market comes from. It's, it's really uh, partly the, these totally arbitrary designations uh, like green belts and, uh, and things that prevent densification of, uh, of suburbs. Hmm. I see. So Britain's bringing in something like 700,000 people a year net and they also can't build enough houses for people to live in because of areas like the green belt and these sort of protections. Obviously this can't continue indefinitely. Uh, something's going to have to break. What do you think will be the kind of, um, what do you think will be given up on? Do you think people will start to build or do you think that they'll crack down on population growth in a serious way? Well, I hope that Yimbyism will become more of a political force and that more people realize uh, that the, there is no logical reason why why Britain must have more expensive housing than than its neighbour countries, which really is the case. Uh, there is um, for, uh, London, in particular, is, is completely in a league of its own. It's the most expensive city in Europe. But even uh, places like like Oxford, uh, Reading, still have much higher rent levels than otherwise comparable European cities. And there is just nothing natural about this. It's, it's purely self-imposed, purely um, a politically imposed uh, problem, and. Nim Yimbyism, so the, the counter movement to Nimbyism, is becoming a bit of a constituency in its own right. I do hope that that will uh, that uh, some politician will at some point just pick up on that and uh, realize, okay, if I present myself as the Yimby candidate and if I push through much greater levels of house building, even if the Nimbys hate me. So what? They can hate me. Hate me. I have my other constituency, which are the Yimbys, and they're going to like it. So far, that didn't happen. There were several housing ministers uh, or housing secretaries over uh, over the decades which were pro-housing. There was Nick Bowles a decade ago, and uh, and, and uh, Robert Jenrick more recently. It's just that every time they may start with some sensible reforms, then the, the NIMBYs start whining and then the backbenchers get nervous because it's in their constituency and then they immediately scrap the reforms again. And I'm hoping that that, uh, that vicious, uh, that, that cycle will, will just at some point come to an end. But the other problem, that, the other possibility that I could see uh, is that, um, well, you say it can't be sustained. Uh, I'd say, why not? Uh, things can always get worse. We, we could get to a situation where uh, it becomes more and more normal that people share flats and even in, in their 30s and maybe 40s and that it will just uh, continue. That We now have a situation already in London where it's normal. On average, people fork out more than half of their uh, net income for rent. Uh, that could go up further still. This, uh, it, it can always get worse. So, do you not think that would engender uh, like a massive political backlash? Like people are already pretty fed up, and that if people were to say like if there was a sort of YMB candidate, um, those concerned about immigration figures would be like, no, we don't want to build because we want this problem to continue to be present, and we if we make a sort of um, if we if we lessen the load, let's say we make it easier on people, they won't be as concerned with what we see as a massive cultural change because we'll kind of wash away a lot of the, the economic turmoil that's, that's been brought about? Uh, 
where if somebody objects to migration on cultural terms, which, as I said, is a reasonable concern, uh, I think it's completely wrong that from when the woke side uh, tries to portray that all as xenophobia or racism. Um, if that is someone's concern, they should just express that concern directly. They should not try to use the housing market as an indirect form of immigration control. Why not? Be because that leads us, we have effectively done that already. And that leads us to the worst of all worlds where people still keep coming in, but we don't build the houses. Hmm. And then, of course, the newcomers have to compete with the people who are already here for hmm. a limited housing stock. Hmm. Then you get the absolute worst of all worlds. You still get the, the, the cultural change that lots of people are concerned and about. And you get people who are, who, are, who are severely annoyed that they can't yeah. buy a house in the way yeah. that their parents Absolutely. could. Um, what is this Yimbius coalition actually going to look like then? Because whenever I have looked into this, um, it seems to me that the, the conservatives are afraid of being too proactively deregulatory in this mm -hmm. in this area because they don't want to lose effectively boomer constituents who, yeah. don't, who don't want the, the, the who want who don't want the value of their properties to to deflate. And I, I imagine that those people are exactly the same sort of people who, who are likely to be concerned about um, high, high levels of immigration. On the other hand, you have younger people who are really ticked off about the, 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 the state of the housing market, yet are not likely to, you know, um, line up behind a candidate who's promising to deregulate all things like Liz Truss. Like, wh wh how, how is this coalition, like, geographically in Britain and demographically in Britain, going to assemble itself? Like, what's it going to look like? It's, it's going to look fairly incongruous if it develops, isn't it? Probably, yeah. But that doesn't have to be a problem if it develops at all. Yeah. I can't say what it would look like demographically. Probably mostly um, young, middle-aged people uh, who are quite well educated and uh, it might be led by urban planning nerds <laughs> and you might have a wider... Uh, well, any movement has a, a hard core are you, are you, of, of are you, people. Are you making a pitch? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying my best here. Uh, you might have a wider movement around uh, them who are... They're not all going to be urban planning nerds. Yeah, yeah. They might just be... The basic argument is fairly simple. It's supply and demand. We get that in every other sector. Mm. If there was some law that said um, breweries are not allowed to brew more than a million hectoliters of beer uh, per year, you would not need to have a PhD in economics to figure out that <laughs> is going to have an impact on the price of a pint. And yes. housing, uh, yeah. even though there are plenty of people yeah. trying to make it seem more complex uh, than it is, that's really at the heart of it, it really isn't. It's well, really it's, very simple. It's very interesting that you say this thing, because I do still hold that this distinguishes you from many other people who would, would, would identify as economic liberals. I mean, when, like, clearly, it seems to me that a lot of people on the on the alleged right of the Conservative Party, the, the, the kind of economic, economic liberal Jacob Rees-Mogg types on the on the right of the Conservative Party, they are only happy couching their objections to immigration in logistical terms. They will talk yeah. about housing and they will talk about uh, GP appointments. They will talk about edu educational places and all these sorts of yeah. things. They're only ha happy making the logistical argument because they don't want to fall afoul of um, of the luxury belief classes taboos about you know um, d demographics and identity and all these sorts of things. They don't really want to go into that terrain. Mm -hmm. they, 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 un they understand that that comes with um, a certain amount of social punishment, so they will only couch the argument yeah. in favour of in, in terms of logistics. And I was at an, a, a seminar in Oxford recently, at which Peter Thiel was speaking, and he said, like echoing these types of people in the Conservative Party, that he would have no problem with immigration at all, so long as we could solve the housing crisis. It, 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 effectively saying um, the opposite of what you're saying, which is that 
um, the, the only possible case to be made against immigration is logistical. You're saying that that's the weakest case. We should mm -hmm. be focusing on the cultural case against immigration. Why do you think that so few of your fellow economic liberals are, are, are able to consider, are able to think of a country as anything more than just an economic zone where event, where economic, where transactions happen? That they're un, they're unwilling. They, they, I mean, there's, there's a there's a quote by. Um, the musician Leonard Cohen, which I'm quite fond of, where he says that in the same way that an identity card is not a man, a credit rating is not a country. And you seem to acknowledge that by saying that there are cultural objections to be made to immigration, where so many economic liberals just think of Britain as an economic zone, as far as I can tell. Well, I've never, I've been making this argument for, for many years. I've never had any pushback from fellow economic liberals. I don't think there's, um, I don't think that's in itself controversial. It would be more about once you go into, okay, what's the policy implications of that, then um, uh, you might, then people might disagree and, and I'm a bit conflicted there myself. But uh, it's generally the case, I think, that uh, not specifically economic liberals, but most people talking about this, would uh, prefer to talk about the logistical or the economic constraints, uh, even if that's not what they actually have in mind, purely because it sounds more socially acceptable. Mm. Uh, I think it was Eric Kaufman who, yeah. was, who said that, I uh, can't remember the exact word, but he said people feel compelled to rationalize their cultural concerns in economic language. Yes. Mm. I think that's what's going you on. I think that's what's going on. But, but, but there are loads, of, I, I must push back on that, on that a little bit, because I mean, I, I've met a lot of these people. I've been at conferences before where these issues have been discussed, and I've met people who are not at, at the IEA necessarily, but I've met people like, I can't remember. Who's the chap who runs the Adam Smith Institute? Who's in charge of uh, the... Max Marlowe. Really? Is it? You're um, thinking of Sam Bowman, uh, who's... Potentially. Potentially. I've met lots of these sort of Adam Smith Institute, IEA types, and when you try and engage them on the question of immigration, they, they think that it's, it's incredibly vulgar to speak in these terms because you're, you're regarding people as something other than individuals. And there is, this, there is this liberal bias that exists in IEA circles, I would argue, that, that, that you, it's, it's, there's something fundamentally illiberal about considering a person as anything other than an individual. If you're considering them as a proxy for their culture, Mm. then you're, you're, you're judging them on the basis of group generalities rather than on the basis of what they bring to the table as an individual. And therefore, cultural concerns about individual immigrants are, you know, sort of dismissed a priori. Well, and, and that's uh, seeing somebody as an individual rather than a representative of a group is the right thing to do on an individual basis. If yeah. I deal with an individual, I treat them as an individual. It, I, do too. I, I, yes. I don't think, uh, okay, you're a member of this group, therefore I will mm. now act in a different way. Uh, but of course, in, in policy making terms, um, aggregates can matter. And uh, it's, I think this is just clear to everyone. Nobody would say, say if, uh, if for some reason I had to live in Saudi Arabia, mm. I don't think that a few weeks later I would consider myself a Saudi Arabian <laughs> or, or that I would start to say, we, when talking about the population of Saudi Arabia, <laughs> yes. un unless it's purely in the sense of we are suffering from the heat wave or so. Yeah. Um, and I can't see why uh, it, it should just be obvious that that is uh, also the case the other way around. That, uh, of course, people are rooted in a particular culture and uh, some cultures are further apart than others in mm -hmm. aggregate terms. Of course, uh, there, there are people everywhere who might feel 
uh, in, in Saudi Arabia or whatever who might feel much more at home in Britain mm. or or in or in Sweden than they do in their own home uh, home country and uh, that's uh, one reason why uh, economic liberals or, or social liberals would want uh, the, the the migration system to be relatively open so that such people can choose to live where they feel they are more at home and that's why I'm I'm also sympathetic to that perspective but of course we also have to take into account that it's not going to be true for everyone and um, so that's why I don't see a problem with say a, a migration system that um, that is a two-lane system that does say uh, okay if you're from say Australia or Canada uh, you're obviously not going to have any integration difficulties and people will not think of you as somehow you as might be really foreign. <laughs> okay, <laughs> maybe, maybe you can tell us more about this. Um, but I would absolutely have free movement between culturally similar countries and um, for and a version of the, the current system uh, for the rest of the world. I think the current system isn't too bad. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's too controversial to say that Commonwealth countries and places that you can graft a transplant in at a much uh, the degree of difficulty is going to be basically trivial should yeah. have priority. I mean, that, that's obvious. And there, there are other countries that do that. I think Canada actually used to do that. Um, switching gears a little bit, talking about the individual versus the mass and uh, your book, for those who haven't read it, why does socialism seem like it can't be killed? Like it's not working anywhere, really. Uh, well, I mean, uh, the book specifically addressed the claim that uh, Socialists would always say it's just never been really tried. Mm. Uh, that, uh, that every time it goes wrong, they will say, "Oh well, that that isn't really socialism." Uh, that's because they define it by in terms of the outcomes they would want to see. Right. Uh, and the outcomes are uh, that first. Well, firstly, of course, that it produces prosperity and, and everybody mm. is happy in it. Uh, but also, they have this idea that socialism means a democratically run economy, um, and that, of course isn't possible. We can't all, not in a large country, you can have a, a group of 100 or 200 people who can uh, say maybe an Israeli kibbutz, they can run their kibbutz, their mini economy, if you want to think of it in those terms, democratically. But a country with 65 million inhabitants uh, can't collectively plan its economy. Hmm. It will in the end mean you have a technocratic elite, they make the decisions, they impose a five-year plan on everyone. And, but that isn't, that's always what you end up with, uh, but it's not what socialists want. And as soon as you get those results, uh, they will say, ah, but they, they just misunderstood what Marx actually wanted. They just misunderstood the socialist idea. And that's why it's, uh, that's why it's not working. And um, socialists then have this habit of distancing themselves from failed experiments and moving on to the next one. Yes. We don't have one at the moment, but there will be one. There, there was re the, the, the perhaps most recent one, I maybe you'd agree with this, is, was Venezuela. Like the, the, there yes. was a lot of enthusiasm about Venezuela in the in the late 2000s and the early 2010s, mm -hmm. and many people who then became part of Corbyn's entourage had written op-ed pieces in whatever it is, like the, the Independent and the Guardian, hailing mm -hmm. Venezuela's experiment with socialism. And then as soon as it started to go badly, they started distancing themselves from it. Um, do you think that there's something uh, psychological and like perhaps maybe this might be doing them a little bit too much credit, but fundamentally philosophical about people's inability to distance themselves from these sorts of failed experiments? Because one of the things that I think distinguishes the left from the right uh, on a sort of philosophical basis is on the right, there's a tendency to uh, recognize that 
things which might seem absurd in theory, like the idea of having a king, or like mm. the idea of like whatever it might be, it might seem absurd in theory, actually can work in practice and muddle mm -hmm. along pretty well over the course of centuries in practice without too much trouble. And so they, they tend to put practice before theory, whereas on, 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 on the intellectual secular left, at least, there's such a that they're so in love with abstractions, they're so in love with theoretical paradigms that the, 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 um, the, the inevitable flaws of capitalism, which any economic system has flaws, the inevitable flaws of capitalism are, are, are judged in the light of a theoretical paradigm that's up here and that's, that, that, that's always going to be pristine regardless of its particular failures, failures in practice, whether that happens in Cuba or Venezuela or the Soviet Union or China. It's the theoretical paradigm that matters for them, not its mm -hmm. instantiations in, in human life. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So capitalism is always uh, judged by, well, not just warts and all, but almost exclusively by the warts, yeah. uh, the, the least uh, appealing parts. And that is compared to socialism as an abstract ideal, never an actual socialist economy, never Cuba. Uh, and never again Venezuela, of course, mm. as you said, uh, mm. that that was very different until, uh, well, yeah, just... 2017, uh, 2016, 2017-ish, well, was when they started distancing themselves from it. It started when, uh, when the oil price dropped yes. and, they, and the economy collapsed because yes. it was only propped up by abnormally high oil, oil prices. Yes. So they, uh, Travis was lucky for a while that he had uh, the highest oil prices in decades and uh, that's how he could finance um, a lot of the stuff that he was doing. But it's never that he never had a sustainable economic model. He, he just got extremely lucky with mm. uh, the situation of global oil prices. And as soon as that was over, uh, the economy collapsed. Even in the good times, even while oil prices were very high, they already had shortages, uh, just less extreme than later. Um, but yeah, it, it is true that that's always the comparison. Uh, so the worst aspects of, of the capitalist economy that we actually have Mm. Uh, compared to uh, the ideal socialist system, but that's of course that's not what you would do in any other uh, sector. Any, no, of course any, not. Any other mm. kind of comparison. Uh, if you want to talk about purely theoretical ideals, then you have to do that on the capitalist side or whatever else you might be comparing it to as well. Uh, then you either compare one theoretical ideal to a different theoretical ideal yes. or one system in practice to a different system in practice. Compare but like you can't like. mix, the, mix the categories. Absolutely. Considering the long history of failures that socialism has provided uh, a giant mountain of bodies and still no omelets, um, why do you think that it's socially acceptable for people to identify as a socialist and like not socially acceptable for somebody to say that they were a fascist? Also a very bad political system, you know, kind of really tried two or three times, you could say, also produced a lot of dead people. But if you compare it simply just based on, you know, countries ruined, lives destroyed, mm -hmm. I would say that socialism is actually much worse, quantitatively. Well, it's because uh, we focus on intentions, um, the left especially, and mm. not even so unreasonably. You could still say, purely in terms of a moral judgment, you could still say maybe there is a difference between a system where which doesn't start with the intention of mass murder. Uh, it just ends up there because of economic reasons, So, uh, uh, which is what uh, the Soviet Union was like. And misreading human nature and thinking that you can abolish selfishness and that sort of thing. Yeah, and trying to override traditions. And, Indeed. Um, yeah, there's this whole idea of creating, a, creating a new man, mm -hmm. which then, uh, when actual people don't behave the way planners want them to yeah. behave, then you need authoritarian measures. And if you combine that with absolute centralized power mm -hmm. over the whole economy, then yeah, 
you've got a recipe for disaster. But you could still say that's you, not what the, the founding fathers, uh, whether that's the founding fathers of the theory, Marx and Engels, or even the, the original Russian revolutionaries uh, in their early days wanted. They did not start with the intention. Uh, of creating a dystopian hellhole, whereas with fascists, well, they just had uh, terrible ideas right from the start. Mm. And um, you could, at least in theory, I guess, imagine a, a version of socialism without gulags, uh, but not so with fascism. It's difficult to, but it's difficult to imagine Nazism without extermination camps. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah there, uh, it was it was there right from the start that uh, already. Uh, in, in the in the very early party programs and, and in Mein Kampf, the, sure. the, the idea of uh, first the um, uh, violent territorial expansion yeah. was always there. Yeah. The, the idea of living space in the East already in Mein yeah. Kampf. What what can, can that mean in practice other than uh, the, other than starting a war and um, this, and going on about the Jews uh, mm. that that was there right from the start. And, and then, well, what's that going to lead to? Are, are we not practice? risking conceding a little too much to the socialists there, in a way? In the sense, I mean, if you can you can comb through the writings of people like Engels and Marx, and even more so through the writings of people like Trotsky, Lenin, and and find all sorts of like bloodlust in the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the way they write about their plans. No I mean, way. It's, it's not it's not completely absent, is it, from from sort of the, the canonical socialist texts? The idea that it might let go in, the, in a sort of resentful, um, an, an anti-human direction. I mean, that's something which is does has existence in, in, in sort of socialist circles ever since Babeuf in the French Revolution. Yeah, there, there was always there always had this idea that uh, there's going to be a backlash from the bourgeoisie, from the capitalist mm -hmm. class, and that will not end the day after the revolution. These people will still be there, mm -hmm. and they will need to be neutralized in some way. Uh, so in that sense, it's not that uh, that the early socialists thought uh, it's going to be completely bloodless. Mm. Uh, but they did think that they were talking about a tiny group, mm -hmm. and that therefore they they surely did not envisage that they would have gulags decades after the revolution. They thought that maybe the first two or three years you have these troublemakers still around, and you need to neutralize them in some yeah. way. Um, so Lenin talks about that in, in a book that he wrote just before the Russian Revolution, where he said uh, it's not going to be cuddly, it's not going to be a walk in the park, the, the bourgeoisie uh, are going to cause trouble and we will deal with them. And that foreshadows some of the stuff he did later. Uh, but even there he does also say uh, these are so few people that the amount of repression, the amount of violence that we will have to use will be tiny compared to what the Tsarist regime does. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be the exact opposite of the truth, that the number of people executed, <laughs> yes. uh, the number of people imprisoned for political reasons just went through the roof. And it was far, far worse than the worst year of Tsarism. And that's the, mm. the qualitative difference. It's interesting because the classical critiques of capitalism have been that they uh, necessarily that, that, that capitalist systems necessarily impoverish the poor, they lead to sort of intolerable levels of inequality. These are, these are the sort of classical critiques that are made of capitalism, but there are some new fashionable uh, voguish critiques being made of capitalism today to the effect that capitalism is sort of inherently white or it props up a system of white supremacy or that it, 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 it supplies a kind of a polite cover for the persistence of structural inequalities yeah. couched in terms of race, gender and sexuality rather than in terms of socioeconomics and, and, and class. 
Apart from anything else, I'd just like to put a note in here and say, I think this is one of the reasons why many libertarians, and again, you're not all economic liberals, and again, you, you don't seem to be one of these, but many of those types of people who don't like, who think that it's a little bit vulgar to talk about the culture war, whether or not you are interested in the left's latest cultural onslaught, it's likely that the left's latest cultural onslaught is interested in you. Yes. And they're likely to go after precisely the sort of economic theories. Uh, like once all politics becomes culturalized, as Frank Ferreira puts it, once all, all political issues become culturalized, as he puts it, people who care about those political issues, whether it's capitalism, whether it's something else, cannot afford to be completely neglectful when it comes to culture. But you've been writing about this recently. Like, What, what, are, the, what are their main arguments against capitalism as a sort of inherently racist system, and, and how do you respond to them? Yeah, first of all, um, anti-capitalism has always been there for over 100 years. The justifications for it keep shifting to uh, according to whatever is fashionable at the time. So at the time when anti-consumerism uh, was fashionable in the 70s, uh, then of course you had anti-capitalists saying, oh, well, it's, it's capitalism uh, creating all these artificial needs through advertisement and through creating status anxiety. And if we had a different system, that wouldn't happen. But of course, uh, people in non-capitalist economies are not less materialistic than uh, people in capitalist economy. So the justification for why exactly capitalism is bad keeps shifting and they went quite quickly from it impoverishes the workers to well okay it gives the workers a high living standard but they just use it to buy trash and, and, mm. and we need to uh, we need a system which uh, provides us with better aesthetics and better consumption habits. Uh, and since now we live in a, in a woke era since uh, the progressive woke left is now culturally dominant uh, you know, it's not surprising that nowadays capitalism is attacked from that angle, through that lens. That nowadays uh, everything has to be uh, about sacralized victim groups. And uh, therefore you get people, uh, of course, saying, well, capitalism is also an inherently racist system. Uh, capitalism can't be separated from white supremacy. Um, quite often these arguments are, are very ad hoc. Somebody mm -hmm. starts from the position, here's capitalism, I don't like it. Here's the thing that's currently fashionable and that I do like. So I will frame my critique of capitalism in the terms of the currently fashionable thing. Uh, tomorrow that might be something else and then capitalism will be attacked uh, in some other way for different reasons. But there will still be anti-capitalism tomorrow. Uh, yeah, right now it's the woke stuff. We've had a revival of this idea that the Western world grew rich through colonialism mm. and the slave trade. That's uh, what I'm currently uh, writing a paper about. Uh, short summary is that it's not true. Um, you, you can have bad stuff happening in a capitalist economy, of course, mm. and nobody would dispute that. It's just that uh, the bad stuff in capitalism is not uh, foundational to capitalism and you can abolish it and the capitalist economy the doesn't works. do worse. It's a bug, not a feature of yes. the system. Yes, and, and, and you see that just from the fact that once you abolish the bad stuff, yeah. what happens to the economy? Does it does suffer? It does collapse? It collapse? Yes. Or, or, or does it continue as before? Yeah. And Britain did not do worse after um, after dissolving the empire, yeah. for example. There's a really interesting point. I, I, I'm not always and everywhere a fan of um, Milton Friedman's, but he does have a very neat encapsulation of this point that you're making where he says that I he said I have never ever argued that wherever you have capitalism you have freedom I've only ever argued that wherever you have freedom you have capitalism yeah like, uh, like, uh, and that that seems to me to be true um, uh, it's also um, it's also tr true as well the reverse case can be made that not all empires or slave economies in history 
have been rich. I mean, I mean in, in, in the United States, one of the reasons why the Civil War, why the South lost the Civil War was precisely because it was an agrarian backwater at a time when the North was an industrial powerhouse. And even Eric Hobsbawm, in his sort of tetralogy of modern history, in the second volume of that, he concedes that the South had better generals. The South had much better generals. And if it was purely a question of military strategy, there's no reason to think that the South couldn't have won. But they just simply didn't have the economic might to contend with the North, which didn't have slavery at a time when the South did. And then in modern times, you have countries which have become incredibly rich from very dire starting points without suddenly adopting a slave economy or having a great big expanding empire like J Japan in the in the 19th century with the Meiji Restoration would be a good example of that, as would South Korea since the Korean War, which at the end of the Korean War, South Korea had a GDP the size of Somalia's today. And now it, is, it has become you know, incredibly rich without importing loads of slave labor and without invading all of its neighbors. But so, it's also within Europe that there's no correlation between whether a country was a colonial power or not, or whether it industrialized mm -hmm. or not. And you had the original colonial empires, uh, Spain and Portugal. Of course, the Industrial Revolution did not start there. They were, in fact, laggards for mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and took a century longer. And uh, then you had the Switzerlands and uh, the Scandinavians. And uh, there, there's just no correlation either way. And that uh, just shows that, yeah, if a, a rich country chooses to be a colonialist power, they can do that. It's a political choice, but that's not the foundation of their, of their wealth in any way. Hmm. Looking, looking to the continent here as we sort of wrap mm. up, um, I just got back from a trip to Germany. I lived in Germany for a year before I came to London. You're originally from Germany. What do you make of the German political situation post-2015 Vishoff and Das, Angela Merkel era? What do you think about the AFD now ranking at like 22 to 25 percent national polling? I'm surprised by it um, because it, it always felt like a very left-wing place when I lived there. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I moved away in 2007. But yeah, I guess this is a backlash against, uh, in, in part against the uh, the Merkel policy, uh, where it's going to go, I've, I've no idea. You have It messes up the parliamentary arithmetic. Mm. Uh, you have this big block in parliament and that nobody else wants to work with, form a coalition with. And that just means that the other parties get forced into uh, unsuitable coalitions. And that's already happening now, that uh, you have a, a coalition uh, of, uh, of Social Democrats and, and, and Greens with the Liberals. Yeah. Uh, they just don't fit together. The Liberals and the Greens in particular, uh, they've always hated each other. And uh, they just really shouldn't be in, in, in a coalition, unless it's maybe somewhere at the, the municipal level where they agree on narrowly on one thing that only matters in that locality. But. Um, yeah, it, it's just messed up a pattern where for a long time you either had conservative liberal coalitions or red-green coalitions. And mm. they can work together, <clears throat> they have differences between them, but uh, there, there's a large amount of goodwill. Uh, but yeah, what it does mean is that uh, I guess the liberals uh, in the coalition have managed to uh, prevent some of the worst instincts of, of what an otherwise left-wing coalition would have done. So, the Greens on their own would almost certainly have pushed ahead with things like rent controls. Yeah. Uh, having the Liberals in there, I, I guess, helps. But um, yeah, there is like here, there is they have a problem of um, the political right, a large parts of them, just having abandoned, uh, just accepting that the left has won hmm. culturally, and the whole this whole thing with uh, switching of nuclear energy that 
that's where that comes from. That they, they just thought, well, there's, there's no way. Uh, the high status opinion is to be anti-nuclear hmm. because the Greens are anti-nuclear and have always been and they've literally grown out of an anti-nuclear movement. They've made that the high status opinion and um, and high status opinions just get more widely and, and, adopted. And has that, has, has that um, survived contact with the reality of war on the continent in that illusion, has that survived contact with the reality of war on the continent in Germany? Is, is it still high status to be anti-nuclear? Um, I don't know. I I'll, I'll, I'll catch up with the situation around Christmas. Hopefully not. Not entirely sure. What do you make of the, uh, of the AFDs? Because um, obviously the, the, the main issue for which they're known is their objection to mass immigration and um, the, the, the demographic change through which Germany has... Uh, uh, to which Germany has been subjected since 2015, um, and maybe a little earlier than that, but particularly since 2015. Uh, are, are, do you regard the AFD as economically sound? Because, in, of course, in Britain there's talk about a realignment which needs to happen in politics, which I expect you wouldn't be entirely behind. There's this idea, I think Matt Goodwin's talked about this, and Eric Kaufman's talked about this, and David Goodhart, there needs to be, we need to be a little bit more left-wing on economics and a little bit more right-wing on culture. I know you don't agree with that. Um, but is the AFD, to, your, to the best of your knowledge, an example of a party which embodies that, or are they actually quite economically liberal, as well as being culturally on the right? They started as an economically liberal party, but they've become a completely different party mm. in the meantime. They were initially they were set up by a bunch of economics professors, mm. uh, which sounds weird now um, mm. that they are now. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they, they were initially a party of, of academics, uh, yeah. of, of people who criticized quite narrowly around uh, the, issue, the issue of Eurozone bailouts, yeah, uh, yeah. where they were the ones saying, well, this isn't what we signed up for. Um, so Eurosceptics in the literal sense, uh, not uh, yeah. skeptical of the European Union as such, sure. but of, of the currency union, and then just became something completely different. I guess partly uh, simply because they expanded, they happened to expand in the East, and in the East there is more demand for uh, this culturally right-wing outlook and uh, the original the founders have all left the party but why can't I don't what I don't quite understand because I would regard myself as broadly speaking not as much as you but as broadly speaking any a liberal on economic matters uh, I, I, I like I, I have immense respect for the writings of Hayek for example uh, for the writings of Hayek for example and but it seems to me that the last leader that we've had in a Western country who's managed to make a certain amount of economic liberalism with a certain amount of sort of national conservatism and cultural conservatism work has been Margaret Thatcher mm. um, why is it so difficult to get this coalition up and running again do you think um, it's hard to say really it's not completely incompatible it could be a coalition, uh, meaning, of course, you, you will notice the different factions within it. They, mm -hmm. There will never be one single political force, but um, an, an alliance of convenience, mm. uh, I guess, could absolutely happen. Uh, I guess it's it's just that at the same time, those people who are uh, the AFD is, is trying to appeal to uh, people who are not economically liberal and and who. Who care about that? Uh, I'd say the kind of alliance that you described would probably have a better chance here where a lot of culture warriors are just not that interested in economics. Mm. Where they would say, um, as long as, as you bash the Wokies, uh, <laughs> I'm on your side and I don't really care whether you want public or private ownership sure. of the utility company. So it, it, would, ha it would have to be a, a coalition where uh, the different constituent parts just prioritize different things. Yes. 
Yeah, well, I mean, my, my sense is certainly that it's an expression of political geography, even in Britain. I mean, when you, when you look at where roughly most of the population is on the sort of, what's it called, the political compass, mm -hmm. it, they, they are much more culturally and socially conservative than practically everyone in Westminster, but they're also significantly less economically liberal than people on the economic right of the Conservative Party. Yeah. And that does seem to be where, where the, the, the voters are at the moment. I don't know necessarily why that's the case, but... Um, Thatcher, Thatcher, of course, certainly wasn't. She was a British patriot through and through, and she and she thought that, in many ways, she thought that the kind of econo economic liberalism that she was promoting was it was it wasn't so much a, a, a good in itself. Although I'm sure she thought it was a good in itself in many ways, but it was a sort of stimulant to a to a broader national uh, renewal. And um, she certainly wasn't in favour of you know whole neighbourhoods in London and whole neighbourhoods across the country becoming sort of culturally completely unrecognisable. She she lamented the way in which that had happened and in the late 1960s she was actually a Powellite and in the early 70s she was actually a Powellite and supported Powell against Ted Heath. Mm. Um, so it's, 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 it's a curious um, uh, sort of coalition of ideas that ha we haven't been able to get up and running again in this country which, which strikes me as a, as a bit of a shame. Um, Christian, can, bef before we finish, can you um, Socialism is increasingly popular with young people. Um, mm -hmm. That was very evident when Corbyn was at the head of the Labour Party. Do you sense that that enthusiasm has died down a little and has been replaced by an obsession with race, gender and sexuality among younger people? Or do you think it's still, do you think it's here to stay and it's still a force to be contended with? It is absolutely, yes. It just migrated straight into Black Lives Matter. At the moment Corbyn stepped down, that movement exploded, and then Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil. And, and this is just a, a straightforward continuation where the emphasis is a bit different. But if you went to any, um, well, I guess I, if you, they're, they're not really doing them anymore, but if you had gone to a BLM march um, two years ago, and if you had asked them, Okay, you guys primarily, of course, see yourself as anti-racism campaigners, but if you had to take a stand on economic issues, mm. would you describe yourself more as a socialist or more as a capitalist? Mm. I can guarantee you that 99% would have said, uh, I'm a socialist. And there's no logical connection. Mm. There's no reason why somebody who has that point of view on one issue also has to adopt the whole package. Uh, but in practice, um, left-wing beliefs just come as a big package deal. So uh, if, if you're on a Palestine march, I, I already know... I know all your opinions. <laughs> yes, I know your opinions on every subject. <laughs> and yes. they, they just buy the whole package. And yeah. anti-capitalism, socialism is just... Uh, I've described as the, the mothership ideology um, of, the, of the progressive left and all the other parts, whether it can be environmentalism, uh, one year can be wokery in a different year, and right now it's it's the, the whole Palestine issue. Whatever the uh, the issue of the day is, these are just little ships in the fleet of yes. the mothership, which is socialism. Why do why do the corp, why do corporate interests and corporate behemoths and corporate leviathans get so attracted to this language as well? Then because I mean, it's, it would be very difficult to argue. Maybe you would disagree. But it'd be very difficult to argue that someone like Larry Fink is like a raging Trotskyist, and yet. Uh, he is very receptive to the sort of what Kaufman would call cultural socialism, uh, but he, I, he, I wouldn't, I can't expect that he has much time for Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's economic agenda for the country. Yeah, well, in their case, uh, that's just opportunism. So I don't believe there is such a thing as woke capitalism. Of course, you can find lots of individual companies or individual spokespeople within them. Um, making public pronouncements that sound woke to us, but they're clearly just pandering and opportunistically 
uh, aligning mm. themselves with where they think this is this is where it's at this is uh, what the kids want this is the high status opinion and it's it's just um like a davos type gathering this is where the high status people go and this is the sort of opinions that the high mm. status people express and 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 if that's if that means that you superficially adopt some woke claptrap then mm. you do it but it doesn't mean that uh, that there's any ideology behind that. I think the ideology comes from the progressive left and uh, big figures elsewhere in other sectors like uh, like the corporate sector just parrot that without fully believing it. So, okay, so they're not fundamentally true believers in your opinion. You, so you, and you, what, what evidence would we pony up for this? Is like perhaps the fact that Budweiser, as soon as it finds itself in any kind of commercial and economic trouble where profits are being severely dented, does a great big turnaround? It's, and, and, and if yeah. you and if you really believe something, you should be willing to sacrifice for it. Yes. You should be willing to sacrifice material gain. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the woke, the era of woke capitalism is basically over. I mean, you can even look at Disney now. There, everybody's piling back from this. I think uh, it'll it'll be very interesting to see, though. Do do you not think that if these companies abandon wokeism, but their constituents are still very interested in it, that they're they'll just be forced into a bind because they'll have alienated the right and then the left? Well, I think corporate wokery will continue in some form. It's, it's just that uh, there is now companies will now will hopefully over time become a bit more cautious, uh, because the big difference with the corporate wokery uh, that we've seen over the last three years or so, well, especially since BLM, and earlier forms of uh, political engagement was that companies normally don't take political positions because they know, okay, this may might appeal to some of our customers, but it will alienate others. Mm. So to the only instances where I remember, um, say, advertisements or, or, or corporate figures uh, saying something that you could consider political, it would be the kind of motherhood and apple pie thing that everyone agrees on. And yeah. for a while, they just thought that is what wokery now is. Yes. Yeah, but that falls <laughs> apart in the era of silence is violence. Yes. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately for them. Yeah, so I, so I don't <laughs> think corporate wokery is going to go away completely, but uh, there is now a bit of a backlash against it. It's no longer true that it, it was true, I think, for for a while that if you had a woke message wrapped up in your advertising, uh, some people would like it. Uh, others might grumble a bit, but they wouldn't actively do anything. Mm. They would say, well, well, I just live in a woke world and what, what can I do? I'll, I'll still buy the product. <clears throat> and now there is a bit more of a, uh, a concerted mm. backlash where, mm. where that will be spread around social media saying this company is doing that. And uh, some people might then actually react to that and, uh, and change their, their purchasing behavior yeah. in response. Do, do you think for the consumer that's actually the best method to make like a tangible impact on kind of like, uh, I don't know, the leviathan of wokeness that kind of reaches at them from not only cultural but economic institutions is just simple as boycotting them unfortunately there will have to be an element of that and, and i don't really like it because yeah. I, I like the idea that i just buy stuff that that's good that and that has an acceptable price yeah exactly and i don't want to uh, scan a product in the supermarket and look up uh, what, what are political yes. yeah exactly <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to do the uh, the equivalent of, mm. of vivino the app that uh, evaluates <laughs> wines and uh, yeah. and have a political evaluation of the, of the brand first i just want to buy nice stuff yes. uh, but unfortunately um, 
the personal has become political well, because yeah. the woke left has made it so. Yes. And we have to, to some extent, play by those rules well, we even did. if we didn't choose the game. Exactly, we didn't start this game. Well, listen, Christian, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for coming on to Deprogram. Evan, thank you as ever. You've been watching Deprogrammed. Make sure to like, subscribe, leave a comment if you wish, and we shall see you on the next one. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember, to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.